Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Coming in from the cold, looks back across three centuries of the beautiful game in England and contains references to social attitudes and language from the past that some listeners may find challenging. Hit it! Hit it! Oh, again, cutting back inside. But here's Raheem Sterling on the hat-trick, slots it in beautifully. Goal number five. Is that the Liverpool take it quickly in by Venice and Aldridge going up? Barnes is in there! And Barnes has equalised! A rare-headed goal for John Barnes! And here's Regis, they're caught square, there's a chance! Oh, he did it superbly! Almost went for Flowers, he didn't pull loudly enough, Henry decided he had to take it. In! 2-0! Three defenders and a goalkeeper ahead of him. Oh, what a finish from Andy Cole! Taylor doggedly is trying to stay with Billy Bonds, Bonds a little cross, and Clyde Burst the goal! This is the story of black male footballers in the English game. This is our sporting history. This is yours. I'm Jessica Crichton, and this is Coming In From The Cold, a story you can follow on TalkSport and all your favourite podcast platforms. Last time on Coming In From The Cold, we learned about some of the most important black players of the 1980s, including Viv Anderson, Justin Fashnu and John Barnes. In this episode, we'll head into possibly the most transformative period of time for the national game. When the game was rebooted off the back of a re-emerging national team, the Premier League was born and a new age of superstar overseas talent changed English football for good. And the changing perception of the black footballer in England would be personified by a player who brought the streets to the stadiums and inspired generations. I meet a lot of people and, you know, they all say the same, man. I'm watching football because of you. I'm supporting mm. Arsenal because of you. I support Liverpool. I support Man United. But I like I like you, you know what I mean, because of what you've done. And to be honest, you don't realise you're blazing or you're doing stuff like that. You're just trying to... I was just trying to score and be myself while I was playing and gave... And I didn't do it knowingly. I, like, you know, with the bogle when I danced. And, yeah. You know, arguing with people and just showing that I had the South London kind of, you know, fighting in tunnels and things like that. You know, showing them that I still had the, the, that, that bit, the, the, the rawness inside me, the, what, the, for want of a better word, the road man. Right. That, people could, <laughs> that people could still associate themselves with. I've never changed that. Yeah. And even to the point now, you know, you say a couple of things on Instagram where you throwing roadman kind of language and people, it brings you back to where I never forget about where, I'm, where I come from in that respect. Hopping in from the cold. 
Ian Wright is a legend. And it isn't just because of the 324 goals he scored for Crystal Palace, West Ham, Nottingham Forest, Celtic, Burnley and, most famously, Arsenal. It's for what he represented on and off the pitch. An unapologetically black British force. He didn't change for the game, he forced the game to change for him. Here's Wright's old Gunners teammate, Michael Thomas. He didn't come through youth football, you know, in the clubs. He came into football raw and hungry. And even to this day, that's why everybody loves him. He's just Ian Wright. Former Manchester United and Liverpool star Paul Ince remembers Wright's infectious personality. Full of fun, yeah. full of laughter, and just his passion for the game, you know. For someone who came late into the game, it's another message to younger people out there that, you know, you don't have to come through the ranks to, to, to make it the likes of Wright and Les Ferdinand. He came through late and, you know, Wright was a, a great, great striker. I mean, the ultimate finisher for me. But it was fun to be with. You know, he never had a kind of quiet moment with him. But his love for the game, you know, was undeniable. Former England striker Darren Bent explains how Wrighty was a hero for him and so many others. I mean, I've heard untold amounts of stories of young black, black kids who play football, um, especially around some, at my age, say 36 years old or maybe a little bit younger, a little bit older, and you ask them who their hero are, it's always one out of two answers, it's always Ian Wright, Ian Wright. So I don't think at the time people probably realised the effect that he was having on young black children, especially in the London borough areas. But I'm sure as he's got older and then he listens back to certain, even people that are not footballers, I've heard Anthony Joshua talk about his hero was Ian Wright and obviously he's a boxer. So I think now when he looks back, he goes, you know what? I was maybe one of the pioneers that have kind of helped develop and bring more young black, obviously young black footballers and, and given, make sure they've been given an opportunity. So he probably looks back now and says, you know what, I did do a lot. But at the time where he's just trying to probably cement his own leg legacy in play, he probably didn't realise it as much. Alex Scott, who followed Wright's pathway from Arsenal in England and into the media, pinpoints what made him stand out. I think everyone knows that I love Ian Wright from Highbury. For me, the person on the pitch, what I loved about Wrighty was I saw someone who was just in love with the game. You know, you saw his big, massive, infectious smile and it was just like, I can't believe I'm playing football. I'm here, like, I get to do this. And I think I had that same mentality from where I grew up that I can't believe I'm playing for Arsenal. I get to play for England, you know. It's just so infectious. And I think that I just love seeing when people show that they're so passionate about something. Ian was born in South East London in 1963 to Jamaican parents. That part of the city was a football hotbed and he became a product of his environment. There was a lot going on. It was vibrant. It was, I, I didn't realise how, how, how good it was, you know. And, and we're talking about being able to, like being brought up in Broccoli, but I was able to go and move down in, in Newcross, Lewisham, Deptford, Lee Green. You go all around those places to all the different parties. And it was, it was, it was a good time. It was a, it was a good time when I was growing up. And it's only when I look back now, I realise how cool it was. Wright was a keen footballer as a kid, but as a teenager, he was rejected from many trials at clubs. By his early 20s, he'd all but given up on his dreams of making it as a professional and was instead working as a plasterer. But he was recommended for a trial with Crystal Palace after turning out for non-league Greenwich Borough. He was nearly 22 when he signed his first pro contract with Palace and he knew he didn't have any time to waste, as his former teammate John Solarco explains. Right, he was the most rugged, ragamuffin, effervescent, <laughs> 
they're the you know player you'll ever meet. And he's captivating, and he still is. And what he was, he was just this ball of energy, this ball of desire, this ball of fire. And when I played with him, you just see he had something. And talking to him, you know, Wrighty's an unbelievably fantastic character, but he is the one guy that I think for me just wanted it the most. He had incredible talent as well. He just didn't give a damn. While Wright is now associated with Arsenal, it's with Palace that he made his name and won his first England cap. He holds the record for the most post-war goals for the club and was voted Player of the Century after his seven seasons at Selhurst Park. Palace as a club sought to harvest the talent in their part of South London, and that resulted in a multicultural dressing room where around half the team were black, something that stood out in the late 80s and early 90s. One player who came up through their ranks was England coach Gareth Southgate. The youth team dressing room I walked into had Chris Powell, John Salako, Richard Shaw in it. So I played as a schoolboy in in the youth team with those guys and they were all, you know, all three of them went on to be involved with England. John and Chris both capped. Chris was, uh, Richard was in a, an England squad that didn't unfortunately get the cap. All went on to play and have you know, excellent careers. So straight away, I was in a, a dressing room that was really diverse and where everybody had a, an opportunity, we've, we reflected the community that Crystal Palace was based in. John Salako was another homegrown Palace player. He was born in Nigeria and moved to England age nine with his white English mother. The midfielder went on to play more than 500 games in English football, but is best known for his time with the Eagles that also won him five England caps. As well as Salako, Palace featured other black stars, including central defender Eric Young and midfielder Andy Gray. And up front, Wright combined with Mark Brights to form a deadly partnership that saw the Eagles soar into the top flight, finishing a club record third place in the league and reach the FA Cup final, where Wright scored two goals before Palace eventually finished runners-up to Man United. Gareth Southgate remembers. In the first team at that time, Mark and Ian were really trailblazers and they were a headline writer's dream but also a brilliant strike partnership the balance of what they had Mark more experienced great technical player in terms of his hold-up play physically strong Ian so sharp so quick in the box such a good finisher both of them incredibly hungry you know the 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 amount of work they put in on the training pitch, the dedication to understanding where their goals might come from, their studying of opponents. They were an amazing combination, really. Solako told me that Wright had an elite mentality that showed he was destined for the very top. He was desperate to make it, and we were all desperate to make it, and we were all thrown into his cauldron. But, you know, for Wrighty, I think he was just brilliant in a sense where I think he dragged us all along. He'd fight. He would. He was a scrapper. He was a street fighter. Who had Dennis Burkamp ability. Yeah. It was, and that's why he's great. And yeah. every time he succeeded, he went home and went, "I want more of that." That bigger stage Wright craved would come in 1991, when George Graham signed him for 2.5 million pounds, then a club record fee for Arsenal. His former strike partner Kevin Campbell, part of a collection of black talent at the Gunners that included the late David Rocky Rowcastle, Paul Davis. Michael Thomas and Gus Caesar says that Wright fitted hand in glove at the club. Ian Wright was extra special. I've known Ian Wright for for a while before he joined Arsenal. And obviously because of his link with David Rollcastle, we we always used to give Ian Wright 
plenty stick when we played Crystal Palace because, you know, we used to beat Palace all the time. And we used to say to Wrighty, Wrighty, what are you doing here, man? You know what I mean? What you? And he would, like, be so sad about it. Like, look, man, Palace have been good to us. I said, what are you doing here? You need to, you need to, come, to the, you need to come to Arsenal. Ian Wright's an Arsenal fan, you know, from back, back being on the estate with Rocky. They're Arsenal fans. So seeing what how things transpired and then him coming to Arsenal... It was a marriage made in heaven because, you know, he hit the ground running. It was love at first sight with him and the fan base. And, you know, Arsenal do have uh, in London the most diverse fan base of all. So, you know, it was it was brilliant. But as a person, he's passionate. He, you know, he, he loves the game. He loves the club. And, you know, what a goal scorer he is. He was a, a tremendous person to have in, in the squad and a tremendous, you know, goal scorer for the football club. So, you know, what a guy. Writer, academic and football fan Professor Paul Gilroy believes that the Arsenal team of this period was notable not just for the number of black players it contained, but the roles they took up. There you've got Paul Davis there. He's another key figure for me, you know. And you've got Rocky Rowcastle and you've got Michael Thomas, you know. So you've got them in the engine room, you know. You've got them in the engine room. They're not sort of, as it were, decorations. They're not luxury items on the wing. Do you know what I mean? Marginal to the to the the movement of the team, to the you know resilience, tactical resilience of the team in the game. These are people who are centrally involved in that, who are orchestrating it, if you like. They're conducting the tempo of the football, and they are organising the intensity of the play. So, so the idea that that black people are capable of that was a for many, it would seem, in the racist uh, common sense of British football, that was a revelation because they thought that black people were just bodies. They just thought that they were bodies that could run fast. And to find out that there were minds there, where you least expect it, there's a mind, and that that mind has a, an athletic and a footballing intelligence. This you know, hit some folk very hard. And I think we have to give George Graham some of the credit, really, for demonstrating that and so comprehensively to the rest of his peers. All of Arsenal's black stars played for England, whether at full, B or under-21 level. And their talent couldn't be denied after probably the most dramatic title triumph in English football history, when Michael Thomas scored the injury-time winner at Anfield in 1989 to snatch the title from Liverpool's grasp. Arsenal comes streaming forward now in surely what will be their last attack. A good ball by Dixon, finding Smith. But Thomas charging through the midfield. Thomas, it's up for grabs now. Thomas, right at the end. An unbelievable climax to the league season. Well into injury time, the Liverpool players are down absolutely abject. I didn't know how late, how late in the game it was. There's no clocks at um, Anfield. So when it felt to me, and I'm running through, all I'm thinking now is just make sure I finish this, make sure I finish this. I don't know what's behind me or anything. And what, you know, and just waiting for Bruce Grobler to come out. And so once he showed his hand, that was my, that was me. Pull it over the top, into the corner. And when I see the videos of that and see Ray Houghton so close, wow. Oof, gives me you know, gives me chills, really, to be honest. It gives me chills now, thinking about it, you know. I won't be sitting there being a hero. I'll be sitting there being, what a numpty, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you missed two chances. But no, I'm happy. I'm very blessed that playing a great team at Arsenal. And even best that we won the league and we brought back to London. Kevin Campbell remembers the dramatic night well. And that 89 win, having Michael Thomas, having Rocky on that pitch playing, 
representing. I was in the stand. I travelled up with Rocky. Rocky picked me up at, from Brixton Town Hall at five o'clock in the morning. There I am at Anfield in the night watching Mickey, who went to went to the same school, Henry Fulton, and Rocky win the league title from Liverpool was was amazing. Campbell says that he and his teammates were on a mission to change perceptions of black players and show that they could lead and win at the highest level in the most pressured of environments. Crystal Palace chairman Ron Node said in the early 90s that black players brought skill and flair, but they needed white players to provide intelligence and the toughness needed to play through the cold. It was a perception that had dogged black players for decades. And Campbell says he's happy to have helped challenge that narrative. We set out to make a difference as black players and as black people, because we do represent our, our communities. You know, up and down the country, we might not be from Leeds, we might not be from Nottingham, we might not be from, you know, wherever, but the black communities tend to stick together. And, you know, whether we're playing their team or not, we are representing, we're a representation on the screen of black people. And it's great that people could see us for what it was, you know, whether it's rain, snow, hail, it didn't matter. We were up for it at Arsenal. And uh, we proved, you know, some of the old cliches, you know, when the weather gets cold, they can't do it. No, that was never lobbied at us. Ian Wright went on to win the Golden Boot in his first season at Arsenal. And he claimed the Premier League title, two FA Cups, the League Cup and European Cup Winners' Cup too. And his 185 goals was a club record until Thierry Henry bettered it. Beyond the pitch, Wrighty was ahead of his time. He released music, published an autobiography and even had his own TV chat show during his playing days before his successful move into the media after retirement. Michael Thomas believes that the infectious energy of the street footballer was a driving force behind Wright's success. Ian was demanding and I loved that about him. And to this day, he's still king, you know. Ian Wright, you know what I mean? You know, we, we love that, we love that. It's just like being playing with mates in the in the park. It's just, his rawness is, and there's so much of that in foot, out there in the streets. It's still there. It's un, you know, untapped. Ian Wright agrees that coming up in the streets of South London was a key factor in his spectacular rise. Something that he passed on to his sons, Sean and Bradley Wright Phillips, who both had excellent careers of their own. I don't know what it is about South London, mm -hmm. but then even if you, you go back, like even off of my estate, mm -hmm. there was me, mm -hmm. David Rowcastle, mm -hmm. Stephen Amphibus when you go back, mm -hmm. Sean Bradley. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I, I don't know what it is in respects of the, what's in the water in yeah, South London. The water, man. Bring the water. So many, so, so many people has come through from South London. But I think that when you, South London, it's just a hotbed of football. Everybody just played football and wanted to play football. And you know what I mean? So many good players just come out of South London. I, I, I could not put my finger on what it is because I'm sure that if you speak to people from Newcastle, then Newcastle will say, oh, there's so many people that's come from Newcastle. But I'm talking about a little place like South London. Yeah, yeah, and it's had players. players that went all the way. Kevin Campbell also believes that his generation signaled something different to what had come before them. They were young, black British men who would claim their piece of the pie on their own terms and defined football as a cultural space for those that came after them. Being at Arsenal and coming through, obviously, Pops, we call Paul Davis Pops. Pops was the, the older one for us. And then you had Rocky, Michael Thomas, Gus Caesar, and then myself coming through. And people see pictures of, of us all together. Obviously, Gus was North London, Pops, Rocky, 
Mickey Thomas, myself was South London. Obviously, then you add Wrighty to that mix, another South London guy. And it seemed to be the black communities up and down the country could relate to us as players because it was, we were celebrating, we were doing the dances, the music, it was a music culture. And we just seemed to be on the same wavelength as the street. We were the street. We come from the street. So seeing the dances going on, the, the bogle and all these things going on when we won games and we scored and we used to go out and rave, you know, all nations and all. People used to see us. People see us, speak to us. And the black communities embraced us. And that is so powerful. And I know back in the day, Brendan, Cyril, Laurie Cunningham, all those guys back in the day were embraced by the black community because it's it's a thing of pride. Everyone took pride in having black players representing the communities. You know, they called them the three degrees, didn't they? And and it was it was amazing because the picture with the three degrees is iconic. We didn't have that. We had each other and it was a different time. But we connected through the music, I think. We connected more through music and the street culture. So very, very powerful energy that comes with that. And as well, being at Arsenal, Arsenal have such a diverse fan base that, you know, you get a lot of black guys who go to Arsenal because of us crew, that crew of black players, because they can relate to us. And you go there and you're not the only black guy at the stadium. There's other black people there who you can relate to. It was a thing of beauty. It really was. And uh, I know a lot of people have said, even now I've retired, a lot of people have said, you're the reason why I like football. Your guy, you guys are Arsenal. And I, they're not even Arsenal fans, but they can relate to Arsenal players at the time. So, you know, special, special time and a special group of guys. The one thing missing from Ian Wright's CV was success with England. He eventually won 33 caps, but never seemed to be given the chance to truly establish himself at international level. And Wright was never picked for a major tournament, despite being one of the country's best strikers in his 90s heyday. But there were black players at the forefront as the three Lions roared again. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Coming In From The Cold, the history of black footballers in the men's English game. We've heard about the Palace and Arsenal teams that are at the forefront of changing the perception of black players' abilities. And this change was slowly being reflected in the national team too. Four years after John Barnes became England's first black player in a major tournament, with a 15-minute cameo off the bench as they exited the 1986 World Cup, England would come within a penalty shootout of making the final of Italia 90, with three black players in the starting lineup. Barnes was joined in the team by Des Walker, a lightning-fast central defender who starred for Nottingham Forest, Sampdoria and Sheffield Wednesday during his career, and Paul Parker. Parker, then with QPR, told me the experience changed everything for him. For me, it was, it was a major part of my career. It made a massive difference in, in my life. What happened there in Italy, those five, six weeks away, you know, changed my life, really. To actually to be out there and for England to go so close is one of those things. It was a slow burner, but it got to a point and just didn't get over the line in the end. Mm. It may be our best performance over, you know, over that 120 minutes as well. To be there involved in that and to the fact of how, how well people still talk about it now, 
even though it does make you feel old every time people mention it, because <laughs> they keep saying 30 years, which is not a good thing. It was great, you know, to actually be there playing the same side as Des Walker and John Barnes, especially John Barnes. The fact that there were three black players in the team, it was quite a thing in terms of representation, was it not? I, I'll be honest with you, I, I didn't ever look at it that way because I just looked at it. I was representing my country, to be perfectly honest, and it was great with Des as well and John Barnes. And just just to be there, I think the three of us, we didn't look at it in that way, just the fact we was representing our country. But now when you pull it like that, it was great. And it just proved that, you know, great sides, bad sides, whatever, football, whatever sport is, black people involved because they're good enough to be there. They are, they're there because they're good at what they do and we was good at what we done. As we all know, England would lose a heartbreaking semi-final to eventual champions West Germany in the 1990 World Cup. Three black men playing an integral part of this cherished team seem to shift the perception of the value that players of African and Caribbean descent could bring to the national side. For the London-born, Essex-raised Parker, his excellent performances won him a move to Man United the following year, where he would become a bedrock of Sir Alex Ferguson's first title-winning team with United. Parker would win the League Cup, FA Cup and two Premier League titles at Old Trafford, including the club's first double in 1994. At United, Parker connected with another black player who'd grown up not far from him, and they even shared the same name. But this Paul, Paul Ince, was a very different character. Bold, brash and bullish. Ince would do something that at one time seemed almost impossible. He would become England's first black captain. Graham Taylor said to me, Paul, listen, you know, I'm going to make you captain. That's, that's like the pinnacle of anyone's career, you know, to captain your country. And to just go back to all the stuff that you suffered, I think, because that was the time where when he told me that, that I was going to be a captain, you know, you kind of get back to the room and you kind of think back to, to you know, to how it all started and how far you've come. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. I, you know, I kind of reverted back to all the lads, all the hard work, all the graft, all the racial stuff that I've had to go through, you know, all the abuse that you get from fans at the time to this point and um, you know it makes it all worthwhile you know it really really does and now you're sitting at the top of the mountain you know as England captain and it's been a long journey but you know I got there so to be England captain this is um, was the pinnacle of my career Paul Lintz was born in Ilford in East London and grew up a West Ham fan he joined the Hammers as an apprentice and made his debut in late 1986 away at Newcastle Paul told me he remembers the day well but for the wrong reasons I, got nervous. I was obviously nervous making my debut for West Ham and um, I was warming up down the touchline and all of a sudden all this like abuse you know racial abuse was held at me coins bananas and it was kind of it was frightening for a young kid you know what I mean I was only 18, 19 and it was actually like a frightening experience I realised then that this was going to be something that I'll have, I'll have to experience many many a times now, a lot of people, a lot of players could easily crumble, you know, under that. It could affect them that bad where they don't want to play football. It could turn them away from the game. Um, that's, that's something we've been trying to eradicate since the, since the 80s. But to me, it was like, you know, no one's going to get in the way of my dream, you know. Don't care who it is, what they say, how hurtful it is. 
My dream is to play football. Paul Parker says that Ince's self-belief was key to his ultimate success. Paul self-named the governor. Paul was just loud. He was brash. And it never bothered Paul. We're both from the from you know similar areas. Paul was brought up around Dagnum, I think, the Ilford kind of area. And he was very similar where he was as well. Most he wasn't a lot of black faces around where he was initially. And he's coming in, he's just gone bang. He's just he was just tough. You hear stories from when he was at West Ham, he was just if you hear people talk using the word cheeky, he's understated. He was more than that. And he just he was just there in, in people's faces and he got out the game what he deserved because he, he put the hard yards in. He had to he had to fight hard to get to where he was. And I think every black person that era had to do that. You had to fight. You couldn't sit back. You had to have you know, I don't mean shout and scream, but you you had to have some kind of presence. Otherwise you'd be walked over and and if you wanted it that badly, as much as I did and Paul definitely did, then you had to go out there and make a case and Paul made his case because he went on and he played for Manchester United and he played for Inter Milan and he played for his country. He'd done really well to dig himself out out from Dagenham to get himself to that level. He'd done absolutely fantastic to get there, Paul. And he did it just on self-motivation because he knew he wanted it. And no different to me, no one was going to stop him. After three years at Upton Park, Ince made a million pound move to Man United and he remembers the special bond that he and Parker shared there. You know, it's always funny because when you go to a club, you always look out for the black player, you know, and I think that's the same with me and, with me and Parks. I think, you know, we had a great relationship. We kind of just bonded together straight away because maybe because we were black, you know, maybe, mm. maybe to do. <laughs> and that's just a natural thing, you know what I mean? It doesn't mean I didn't mix with anybody else. I mean, Ryan Giggs was you know, my best mate. Aww. You know, Ryan Giggs lived, lived with me for six months. You know, his dad was black, Welsh rugby player. So, but I think when I first went there, you kind of just lean to those Paul Parkers, Viv Anderson, mm. and you kind of hang around with them. But Danny Wallace, mm-hmm. Danny Wallace was a very close friend of mine. Because obviously when I first joined Man United, I think Danny Wallace came the same time for Southampton. So we stayed, spent six months in a hotel until we could find a house together. So we became best mates, you know. And then as soon as obviously we went going to training, then you see Paul Parker. It looks like a bit clicky, but it's not. You know what I mean? It's not. It just, it just seemed to be magnetised towards these people because we're black and it's like, you know, we are the minority. So we've got to make sure, you know, we stick together. And it's not saying we're racist against white people or anything else. I'm just saying there's three black people playing for the biggest club in the world. We stick together. This is how we do it. At Old Trafford, Ince became a dominant force in midfield as United became a dominant force in English football. He picked up two Premier League titles, two FA Cups, the League Cup, European Cup Winners' Cup and European Super Cup. And it was his presence in this run of success that convinced England boss Graham Taylor to offer Ince the armband as England prepared to play the USA in a friendly in June 1993. It's funny though because, um, you know, most of the teams I've played for, I've captained and I never kind of looked at myself as a as a leader. You know, I was, I've always one of those who had an opinion. I think that comes from being a, you know, a London boy, you know, <laughs> being a bit co- cocky and that, you know. But I think as I kind of grew up and matured and then it was funny that, you know, people wanted to get my views and my opinions and and I enjoyed that I enjoyed that because I, it's funny because when I go back to my days when I used to hang around with all my mates and that 
you know, I was the one who said, right, let's go and do this, right, we're going to go up here. And I was like the leader of that, but I didn't really see it that way as a leader. I was just the voice of the group, you know. So now, to obviously, you're kept in your country, you know, it kind of takes me back to then. That maybe, it, you know, maybe I was a natural leader without me actually really knowing it. So to Captain England was, was amazing. Rodney Hines is sports editor of The Voice newspaper. He remembers his own reaction on hearing the news. Wow, I mean, it was mind-blowing. It was truly pivotal. I remember hearing the news myself and as a younger person, I said, wow, a black man leading the England team. Now, where we are right now, that will be accepted a lot more so. But back then, wow. And Paul earned that right because, you know, fantastic career, did the business, as they say, at Manchester United, went on to Italy for a big club like Inter Milan. And well done to the England manager of the time for making that decision because subsequently the likes of Sol Campbell, Real Ferdinand, Raheem Sterling, all at different times have had the arm back. Sanjay Bandari is chair of Kick It Out and a big Man United fan. With Ince, it was just the, the sort of blood and thunder leadership. And actually, that's also really important because there was these myths about black players in the 70s that you can play on the wing because you're quick, but we'll never put you at centre-half, we'll never put you centre-midfield, and you'll never be captain because you can't be leadership material. Well, Paul Ince was every single one of those things, every single one of those things. And he was a, he was a fantastic player for United, and, uh, and, a, and it was great to see him captain in England as well. But he was, he was a very worthy first black captain of England. Ince leading the team against the USA wasn't memorable in terms of the results, but it was in terms of its impact on wider society, as Ince himself would realise. You know, we got beat, to be fair, which wasn't great. We lost 2-0, <laughs> didn't it? <laughs> Never helps, you know. But um, And I just remember, just like, when we got back from America, and um, I must have had about... Oh, it's about a sack for must have been about a thousand letters. That's when it dawned on me how much, how important I was to the black community and other people. And a lot of those letters were from you know bad estates, you know people struggling with upbringing, parents who had kids, you know watched my journey out of where I come from, you know to make it to where I got to. And it was basically like you can do this too, you know. You can get away from all the bad times, you know, gangs and that. And if you want to make something of yourself, you've got to be brave and separate yourself from those people as much as it hurts because they are family when you hang around with a lot of boys all the time, year after year. You know, you got to make, you can make something of your life. And this is Paul an example of this. So a lot of those letters were how I inspired their children or other people. And this is from China, from Africa, well, all over the place the letters were from. And, um, that's when I kind of realised how important it was to be a black human captain, you know, because it was by black people in the younger generations who wanted to be footballers and who found who were struggling in their, in their environment that they were living in. And I was the way to show them they can get out of that environment and make something of their life. And that meant a lot to me because you kind of look at it just from a football point of view. But really, it, was, it wasn't, it was about the whole society, how I was affecting people non, in non-related, non-related football situations. Yeah. It was about life in general. Um, <clears throat> and that was a great feeling, you know, that you know people looking up to me, to, you know, as an example, as a shining light. So it, it brought a lot of that stuff, you know, being black and captain. Here's Darren Lewis, assistant editor of the Daily Mirror. You could recognise a combative leader, a winning leader, somebody who could inspire with his performances as well as the way that he conducts himself. 
and people would accept it and you could set a tone from the top which is exactly what happened when he got the armband and he was he was he was such a fantastic player full stop but to see him recognized was a source of pride and you have to again you look back at we grew up in a time where if you saw a black person on the tv you know, everyone gathered around because there was a fascination, you know, and, and it seems ridiculous to say that in 2020. But if there was an insp- a positive role model on TV, his success was our success. And so there was so much goodwill towards Paulins when he managed to get that England armband because he showed it could be done. And it's been said many times, if you can see it, you can be it. And I would imagine that there are there was a generation of footballers behind Paul who would have looked at what he achieved and said, now I believe I can do that. Ince would go on to win 53 caps and appear at three major tournaments, including Euro 96, where he was the only black starter as England once again came up short on penalties in the semi-finals to Germany. Henry Winter, chief football writer for The Times, expands on what Ince's international leadership represented. I mean, it was a huge moment because there was a perception that, and some people quite prominent in the game said it at the time, that black players don't necessarily lead. Can they play in cold weather? Are they are they leaders? Can you give them the captaincy? And Paul Ince, with his performances for England, totally mocked those racist perceptions. I mean, I can remember one of the, the greatest Paul Ince performances was in Rome. I mean, if you want moral courage, physical courage, a desire to take the ball under pressure in Italy's backyard in Rome, the Stadio Olimpico, this was in 97, effectively to get England to France 98. It was Paul Ince's performance there. And the, the famous incident when he uh, his head got cut and he had to go down to the dressing room, surprise, surprise, the dressing room door was locked and he had to have the sort of stitches put in very hurriedly and then he came back out. Everything in Paul Ince's performance that night smacked of leadership. He wasn't captain, I don't think, but he was just, what a leader. Ince went on to staff at Inter Milan, Liverpool, Middlesbrough and Wolves before he retired. He then moved into coaching and set another first, becoming the first black British manager in the Premier League with Blackburn Rovers in 2008. Ince is a true trailblazer who laid a path for others to follow. But there's so many players that I've spoken to, Paul, that will tell me that you were their inspiration. Do you recognise that as well for the likes of, I don't know, Ashley Cole, Rio Ferdinand, even Raheem Sterling now, the ones that came after you? Yeah. You paved the way for them. Do you do you do you recognise that? You know what? Honestly, I don't really. I don't unless no. I don't know if you just told me. You just told me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know really. I don't. You sound a bit speechless, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I don't know to take because I, I just feel like I just do my job. You know, I mean, you know what I mean. I just do what I do, and if, if it has an impact on people down the line been great you know I don't want any accolades for any pats on the back it's, I just feel it's part of my job to do what I do and it's nice when obviously you get recognised from people like that to say you know we paved the way from but I think also when you look at it then you might look at the likes of Phil Regis and Laurie Kahneman and Vince Lair and people like that and they paved the way for us there was racism in simply that to go for a lot of stuff rich crap also so they paved the way for us so it's a generation thing and maybe you know like to myself you know, Les Ferdinand, Ian Wright, people like that. Maybe we paved the way for them. But I think when you look at me as an individual, 
because I've done what I've done and achieved what I've achieved and I've captain the country, you know, first black Premier League manager, obviously people will look at that, put me as a like, the flag bearer and say, listen, four minutes paved the way for this, but I don't sit back down and think about I did this for them, but the way I think, you know, mm. I just think it was whatever I did that had an impact on the likes of Rio, you know, Raheem Sterling, people like that. And, and and it's good that they feel that way. And I get a lot of pleasure and gratitude that they do feel that way, you know. Coming up next, how the new dawn of domestic football in England would change the game for good. This is Coming In From The Cold. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to Coming In From The Cold, the story of the history of black players in English men's football. In 1992, English football would be changed forever when the top flight clubs broke away to form the Premier League. This wasn't just a marketing rebrand, it was a reboot. Big broadcasting deals, new sponsorship agreements and all-seater stadia signalled a major shift as English football sought to attract more families and higher income supporters to games. And it just so happens the first ever Premier League goal was scored by a black player, Sheffield United's Brian Dean. Carl Bradshaw with the long throw. Cork waiting on the edge of the six-yard area. And Dean scores! I'm very proud. And, you know, sometimes I look at it and I think, well, you know, it's like I'm a torchbearer for, for, you know, not only for the Premier League, but for myself. It's kind of kept me within a kind of a narrative of how I have to kind of represent myself in a good way. It's, it's been great for that. Look, I'm not going to tell you here that it's it's meant that I can, I dine out on um, the fact that I did it. But of course, it's a, it's a great achievement for myself. I'm sure that some of the great centre forwards at that time would have liked to have had that. You know, the likes of Andy Cole, Alan Shearer, Les Ferdinand, you know, Teddy Sheringham, all of these guys would have liked to have been the first goal scorer. But hey, guess what? Little old, I would, well, not little old, it's big old me, isn't it? In a concerted effort to rid the game of hooliganism, there was an increased emphasis on security in and around stadiums. 
1993, the same year that Stephen Lawrence was murdered in a racist attack in South London, the now Lord Herman Oosley launched English football's first anti-racism initiative. When I became chairman of the Commission for Racial Equality, I had to challenge all our institutions, private and public, about racism. That was my responsibility right across the country, and including uh, Northern Ireland at the time, Wales and Scotland. Now, obviously, football was one area in which I had an experience of being part of racism as a spectator. And indeed, when I played in local teams in South London, which was all the time in my younger life, and I thought, well, what we have to do with sport, because that's where the greatest visibility is of black players and seeing and hearing them being abused on television and knowing very little, if anything, was happening to stop it. So I, with colleagues, decided we would challenge the football clubs, the, the 92 professional football clubs, into joining a campaign to kick racism out of football. That was the name of the campaign. And it started off by trying to get a reaction. We weren't going to stop, but we wanted to get a reaction. We wanted to do it in a way in which they recognize there is a problem and something should be done about it. Although it was very much at a superficial level to begin with and had to be because the clubs themselves at the, at the managerial and governance level did not still accept that there was a problem. And very often, chairman of clubs would say to me, you're creating a problem. Here's Kick It Out, Troy Townsend. There was a need for an organisation to support players around the acts of racial discrimination that they would receive. And I always go back to that iconic image of John Barnes back flicking a banana off a football pitch in, you know, ingrained in my memory, 1988, Goodison Park. John Barnes is having a stormer, but yet he's having to backfick a banana in the way that only John Barnes can off a football pitch. Although it was five years before Kick It Out was formed, I think fundamentally it was one of the main reasons why the organisation, you know, was born to do what it did. And that was to challenge the very aspect of the fan culture that was there, you know, to dehumanise the black culture, the black experience within football. You know, so we were formed as Let's Kick Racism Out of Football. We changed our name four years later because, we were, you know, Lord Herman Oosley was being contacted by so many other people that wanted to almost stand on the front line for their particular characteristic and, and wanted an organisation to stand up for them as well. So we changed our name in 1997 to kick it out. Show Racism the Red Card came into being around the same time as the movement gained pace. Former Chelsea, Aston Villa and Celtic defender Paul Elliott believes that these organisations helped create a pressure for change. I think that was the change in the guard where attitudes had to get better. There was a legislation called the Football Offences Act that was brought into play. Herman was holding the clubs to account. Then education became paramount and then consistent application of the law. And that's all then the football clubs, national associations taking responsibility and showing leadership. Overt racism was slowly being kicked out of stadiums, both by the authorities and by the fact that even the most ignorant of fans were realising it was pretty stupid to shout racist abuse when many of your own team's best players were from overseas. With black stars like Holland's Rude Hullet, Tony Yaboa of Ghana, and Colombia's Fastino Espria forming part of the foreign revolution in English football, 
Though it's interesting to note that some of the biggest reappraisals of fan behaviour came after a white player was abused, with Man United's French star Eric Cantona infamously launching himself into the crowd after being sent off at Crystal Palace in 1995. Oh, what's going on here? Cantona's getting involved with the supporters. Oh, this is outrageous. Two of the biggest stars of the early Premier League era were a couple of London lads who became kings of the North, Les Ferdinand and Andy Cole. When I first started playing football, my dad always used to say to me, no, 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 black man can't play football. And I said to my dad, oh, man, you're talking nonsense, man. He used to tell me, no, no, you cannot play football. He used to stress it to me all the time, you can't play football. Yeah, You have to play cricket. Because obviously coming from the Caribbean, that's what he sees, that's what he knows. He comes to England, he's experienced what he's experienced. And then when he's trying to bring me up as his son, what he's been through, he understands that for me to try and make football, I used to say to me, you're going to have to be three, four times better than your counterpart. And I used to say to my dad, nah, you're talking nonsense, you know. But just like many things my dad said to me when I was younger, it all came to fruition. Born in Nottingham to Jamaican parents, but raised in North London, Cole came through the ranks at Arsenal, made a splash at Bristol City and established himself as a star striker at Newcastle before winning every honour in the game at Man United. But on the way up, Cole says he had to face down prejudice. I remember when a senior pro said to me, oh, he's chalky, yeah? And to this day, this brother's still waiting for me to turn around and answer him, yeah? I mean, I'm, 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 40, I'm 49 next month and he's still waiting for me to answer him. Because my mother didn't name me Chalky. And that's what I do know, yeah? So if my mother didn't name me Chalky, I don't know how the hell you believe I'm going to answer to that. Mentally, if someone's trying to question my skin colour, I'm prepared, I was prepared to rear up straight away. You know, I'm, I'm not having them kind of chat. But when I was an apprentice and, you know, dudes come out with little snidey jokes and all that, some of the seniors or whatever, I used to say, nah, nah, I don't play those games. But that's when my reputation comes as I'm a bit of a problem as well. So those those are the kind of things that I've I've had to work with throughout my footballing career. Ferdinand was an all-action striker for clubs including Queen's Park Rangers, Newcastle and Spurs, his boyhood club. Like Ian Wright, he came into the game late. The West London native worked all manner of jobs, from steam cleaner to van driver to painter and decorator, before being signed by QPR from non-league side Hayes. And Celez, as he was affectionately known, would follow a similar amateur to England pathway as his footballing idol. Growing up, you know, I came out of non-league football and, and Cyril had come out of non-league football. Uh, sorry, the late Cyril Regis. And um, seeing him, uh, Laurie Cunningham and uh, Brendan Batson play on a regular basis for West Brom was the first time I'd ever seen that. So, yeah, um, when I used to round up my mates and we used to go and play on the, on the grass or, you know, uh, at the back of the estate, um, you know, I was always wanted to be Cyril Regis. Paul Ince told me there were great similarities between the two goal-scoring heroes. This was like the Cyril Regis, strong, powerful, score types of goals, to jump so high, you wouldn't believe it. He had all the attributes that Cyril Regis had, and he had that, <laughs> he had that kind of unmistakable laugh, you know what I mean? So you could hear it around the corner, you knew it was Les. It was just the way he laughed. It was like, ooh, 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 but not Frank Bruno. Um, <laughs> but what a player. I mean, you know, you think about the goals, the score that's Newcastle, you know, Tottenham. You know, he, he's, he's another one that should be an inspiration to you know, young strikers. 
Les scored 215 career goals, but is probably best known for his devastating two-year spell at St. James's Park, where his goals drove Newcastle close to the Premier League title. Black players of previous generations described the Northeast as one of the areas where they'd received the most abuse, but Ferdinand was welcomed with open arms. Moving up to St James's Park and, and, and living in Newcastle, I absolutely loved it. Um, you know, everyone was talking about the press down here. Were talking about I was a London boy and I didn't want to move up north. I wasn't going to enjoy it, but um, I thoroughly enjoyed my time up there. Twenty-nine goals in his first season on Tyneside saw him voted the Players' Player of the Year in 1996 making him the third black man to win the award after Liverpool's John Barnes and Paul McGrath of Aston Villa. Any player will say to you to be recognised as your peers as the, the best player throughout that season. Um, there's no higher accolade than that. And, you know, for me, obviously, I would have definitely swapped that for Newcastle winning the league and all of us winning something together um, because you don't go into this game for, for, for personal um, gain. You go in it, you know, because you're playing a team sport, you're going it and you want the team to win. So, yeah, I'd have definitely handed that back if we had won the league. But, um, yeah, to, to, to win that but, and, and be voted by your, your, your peers was, was a special moment. Despite being at the peak of his powers, Celeste didn't play a single minute at Euro 96 that summer, remaining an unused substitute during the tournament. I was, listen, we'd lost the league, but I still felt I'd had a good season. I was on fire. I was, I was, I was feeling confident in the way that I was playing. And I was I was geared up for Euro 96 and I was like, yeah, I'm going to get some game time here and I'm going to score goals here. Cause I, and that's how I was feeling at the time. I felt like I could score goals. And then going through the whole tournament and, you know, sitting on the bench, warming up, sitting on the bench, warming up and not playing a minute, you just you, you just don't feel part of it. I never really felt part of it. And, you know, I'm not sure that would happen in any other country in, 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 in Europe or in the world, in fact. I, I can't regret it because it's not in my, it wasn't in my control. Um, I couldn't pick myself for England. You know, that was in somebody else's hands. In fact, Ferdinand only won 17 England caps during his career, scoring five goals for the Three Lions. Andy Cole had even less chances, scoring only once in 15 England appearances, something that still baffles the mirror's Darren Lewis. If you've got a striker like Cole who can express himself, who can score goals, who went on to Manchester United and won the treble, you know, and proved he could cope with the pressure of performing on a regular basis at the biggest club in the country and in Europe, then why is he not playing regularly for England? But whatever Cole may have missed out on at international level, he more than made up for it at club level. After leaving St James's Park for Old Trafford, with Ferdinand replacing him as Newcastle number nine, Cole eventually flourished under the guidance of Sir Alex Ferguson. The gaffer was always good with me. All he ever used to say was go out there and enjoy yourself. There was times he used to pull me in and say, look, you're overthinking things. You know, I, I brought you here because I knew you was good enough. And all, all those kind of pep talk, you know, because I, I only ever thought about things when I went to Man United. And that's how I was having this conversation as well the other day. I only thought about things when I went to Man United. Before that, it's like I'm playing on a part with my boys and that and scoring goals, enjoying it, having a laugh. And joy. When I was at Newcastle, that's exactly the way I played. Like I was on the part with my mates and just enjoying it because I, I, I never ever put myself under any pressure whatsoever when I was playing football never you know I've, I'm not phased by it you know for me it was something that I loved I was given the talent to do this then when I went to Man United did I actually start thinking about things and overthinking things and you know that's when you start to complicate stuff and that, that, that was the only time in, in my career when I, when I became unstuck when I went to Man United, because I, I was just overthinking things and complicating things a lot more than I should have done, instead of continuing in that same manner of 
and just sat on the park playing with my boys and having a laugh and joke. Cole formed a deadly partnership with Trinidadian striker Dwight York and their goals helped drive United to the historic treble in 1999. Despite winning the Champions League, five Premier League titles, two FA Cups, one League Cup, a Golden Boot, the Young Player of the Year award and scoring 289 goals during his stellar club career, Cole told me that he feels the colour of his skin means his achievements don't get the recognition they deserve. 100%. 100%. And I, I, I will say these things now because I'm at that stage where I turn and say to myself, what have you got to worry about? What have you got to worry about? Huh? When people talk about, oh, it's etched in black and white, it's written down. and Yeah, it is. It is. And my, a, a lot of my, my boys would turn and say to me, but do you know what you've achieved in your crowd? I turned and said, no, man, it, it's, it's gone now. And I enjoyed it. I said, no, no, no. You should be celebrated because people don't celebrate you enough. You know, just like the goals that I've been fortunate to score in the Premier League. I'm, I've been retired, I think it's 12 years now, and I'm, I'm still third highest goal scorer. And when people talk about things like that, they miss me out like it's on purpose. Oh, it's like it's on purpose. Well, number one, number two, and uh, number four, number five is... So people turn and say, oh, what up to number three? All of a sudden, we go from one, two, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And I've, I've, I've had a lot of that since since I've uh, been retired. But for me, I, I get celebrated a lot amongst my own people. You know, they talk about, well, you've done it your way, you're one of us, and, you know, I like the way you move and all that. And for me, that, that, that means a hell of a lot to me. You know, but ultimately, I, I know I should be celebrated a lot more than I have done. But it is what it is. It is what it is. And I think there's probably a few of you that would probably feel the same. You know, Ian Wright, Les Ferdinand, all proven goal scorers, round about your time, maybe slightly before. Did you have a rivalry between you? Did, did you guys as black players scoring goals come together, support each other, talk about the racism you were experiencing? I've, I've never had a rivalry with anyone but me. I, I, I had no time to... Um... To battle the next man. I'm, I'm more than happy if the next man had gone through and achieved more than I achieved. It, for me personally, yeah, it was all about us trying to celebrate each other. You know, because we should never be in competition with each other because it's tough enough already. And that's that, that's the way I, I saw things. So when it comes to goal scoring, you know, whoever was doing well, I'm more than happy to celebrate them because the battle has been very, very hard and it continues to be very, very tough. As the 90s became the noughties, the financial power of the top flight saw it become a league of nations. Players flocked to England from all around the globe, bringing new opportunities and new challenges for black footballers as they began to make up a third of all footballers in the country. A golden generation of playing talent saw their fame and wealth grow, along with a new level of criticism. And this time, rather than fans on the terraces, it was the media, both traditional and social, which now seemed to target black footballers. English football was moving forward, but was it really all good? Join us next time on Coming In From The Cold. Coming In From The Cold is an unedited production for the wireless group and supported by the Audio Content Fund. Hear the rest of the series on TalkSport or subscribe to Coming In From The Cold on your favourite podcast app and smart speaker. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 